This is Cinema Degeneration. I am the devil, and I am here to do the devil's work. I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Just some things you gotta do. We all go a little mad sometimes. You wanna know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? You just can't let them go? Go! Hi, I'm Jackie. Wanna play? <laughs> Please, God. This is God. The dead will walk here. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Your suffering will be legendary even in hell. <laughs> It's alive, it's alive, it's alive. They all flow down here. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Boy, you're folks welcome once again to cinema degeneration but we're spinning something different for you this evening aside from one of our regular shows like grindhouse pizzeria or howling at the full moon this is being dedicated to george romero yes you've heard it right december is george romero appreciation month and for this evening we're bringing you his pretty much most notorious uh, zombie picture out of all the ones that he he's done it was the most profitable one of the series, uh, the 1978 Dawn of the Dead. And joining me this evening is my g- good friend, Jim O'Rear. How you doing, Jim? I am good. I am good. Of course, you know, I would appear on a show that has degenerate in the title because, well, you know. <laughs> right. Well, well, you know, we did record with your better half, the other uh, the other bastard to your bastard. Uh Scott Tepperman and we recorded uh Creep Show 2 last night. So yeah, it seems he's a degenerate too. Yeah, <laughs> we're all degenerates. But yeah, you know, why not? You know, I call him like I see him, you know, and and I embrace it. I'm a degenerate. <laughs> Especially when it comes to these films, you know. Uh I remember my grandmother uh actually sitting one time with me in house sitting you know or babysitting i mean and i wanted to watch dawn of the dead on the tv i don't think it was on spin it was some sort of a horror host thing and like all i got from her was i don't know why you like this trash this stuff's just <laughs> trash and i'm like that's why i like it you know <laughs> that was my dad that was my dad uh, growing up he was always he was always you're gonna go out you're gonna grow up and kill somebody someday <laughs> yeah, that's gonna okay. rot your brain. Yeah, 
<laughs> you know, they're just trying to instill good morals on us, but they didn't realize how, how much of a degenerate that we that we actually are. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Was... They gave me a hard time for a long time, but it's like when, like when Halloween Two came out in the theaters, and nobody wanted to go see it but me. He's the one that took me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I do got a few stories like that. My mother and my grandmother especially loved going to the movies. And, you know, if the title wasn't like, you know, too horrible, something like, you know, the the burning that would never take me to. But like, I, I snuck a few in. Like, I remember one time uh, convincing my grandmother to to go with me to go see Reservoir Dogs because I told her it's a crime caper. It's, it's like a Humphrey Bogart movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, it's like the Maltese Falcon, you know, and she was just like. She, she she enjoyed the movie, but I remember walking out of that movie with her and her asking me one question. I'm like, well, I asked her, I'm like, what would you think? She's like, well, I got to know one thing. Why do they got to curse so much? Like, <laughs> you know, Tarantino wasn't really a thing then. I'm like, this is just the way they, they, they talk, Grandma, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> she was never a big fan of all the blood. And, and I remember, again, you know, the movie we're, watch, uh, we're reviewing tonight, Dawn of the Dead, especially in that last 30 minutes. She was not a fan. I don't. I don't think she really even looked at the television. And <laughs> most of the horrible stuff was cut out because it was for TV. But oh, well, That's we should... she made it that far. She made it that far into the movie and then had to not look. <laughs> yeah, that yeah. With all the zombies and the, the brain eating and the gut munching and everything, all the blood and gore. That was the moment. Yeah, that when the bikers start storming the mall. That's what she been. <laughs> When we go ahead, for further the people who don't know, this movie is legendary. It's a legendary sequel to an even more legendary movie, Night of the Living Dead. It was part of the original trilogy of Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, and Day of the Dead. Uh, my favorite three movies of Romero's is uh, his is his zombie trilogy, and this one is the to me the most epic one. It's the most grandest in scale, and. It's you know I, I know a lot of people consider me a blasphemer for saying that I like this one more than Night of the Living Dead, but I just do because it's just me and uh, I ruffle feathers wherever I go. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't. I mean, you you gotta have. I mean, there there are three different, completely different films in style, tone, and everything. So it's I mean it's it's easy for somebody to have you know to choose one over the other being a favorite because they're they're all good and solid but they're very very different films oh yes all vastly different i mean growing up especially as a child of the 80s day of the dead was my favorite and then as i started to become more of an adult i started hit my 20s and 30s night became my favorite and then over time it's just by process of elimination you know just you know, identifying with, I guess, the messages, the messages that the films had. I kind of enjoy the political side of, of things in Dawn of the Dead, you know, of not like political, but like the, the power struggle, if yeah. you will, between the characters, between, you know, you know, we, we have a couple of SWAT team members, a couple of police officers, a traffic reporter, you know, and the, you know, the, the executive, you know, that uh, Galen Ross plays, you know, at the very beginning, that's the part of the movie that I love at the beginning, because they're just, well, one, we get a George Romero cameo as one of the TV producers. <laughs> right, producers. him and his wife. <laughs> right, and his wife just sitting there right next to each other, and the first thing I, I thought, like, 
Well, Meryl, how, how can you even see without your glasses, without those big glasses you had? How, like, how can you even see anything you're looking at on these monitors? But the politics of running this rescue, you know, running the adverts on the TV for the rescue stations that are shut down. But they're like, we can't turn them off. People won't tune in. Nobody will watch. And they're like, are you willing to kill people for ratings? And I think it's very uh, telling of like, you know, what kind of does happen in real life. You know, I mean, yeah, of course they would, you know, keep running the state, you know, the station rescue station uh, adverts. It was going to keep people watching. Yeah, they're going to worry about ratings. That's all they cared about. Yeah, and especially, I mean, it, it's like so true for today also. I mean, because now it's just like we're, we're headline culture is all it is. Yeah, we, we get, you know, we get uh, sound bites and headlines. And if we, we don't catch those, then we're not we're not catching anything. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is a, a still a leave it on and get the ratings culture. <laughs> right. But, it, you know, this once again shows you that even, you know, you know, was it uh, 30 or 42 years later that the movie is still very relevant in the messages that it has. But I'll give you a quick IMDb synopsis for anybody that out there who is a member of the Living Dead and hasn't seen this movie. If you're listening to these shows, by God, you should have seen Dawn of the Dead by now. So we're giving spoilers. It's going to be sp- not spoiler free on this show but the imdb synopsis is as follows uh following an ever-growing epidemic of zombies that have risen from the dead two philadelphia swat team members one traffic reporter and his television executive girlfriend seek refuge in a secluded shopping mall which you know pretty much tells you the the gist of the story there's not much more to it than that but it's a psychological it's psychological warfare because you know you're watching people break down. You know, uh, David M. G. as Stephen. You know, he has his breakdown moment. Even Ken Forey as Peter, but uh, Scott uh, forgot his last name. Who plays Roger? Reininger. I, I yeah, I can never remember his last name. I always call him Scott Adkins, and that's not his name, but that's what I always call him. <laughs> <laughs> That, that that works for me. But Roger, you know, he's the cool cat of the two, you know, SWAT team members. You know, he's very suave. You know, he's he looks like he's almost having a little bit of fun doing what he's doing. But, like, when they start rolling around, he kind of loses it a little bit. I did write down that we have, if you watch the, depending on which version you watch. I rewatched it today. I watched the re- regular U.S. theatrical cut. I have the Anchor Bay Ultimate Edition that's got the extended version, the European version, the German version, and everything. I just decided the right to watch the regular uh, theatrical cut. But I still catch the little Joe Pilato cameo as one of the policemen that's like raiding the station while they're trying to steal <laughs> a helicopter. And I love Joe Pilato. You know, he he was sorely misused in this one, but, you know, we'll have to talk about him a little bit more when we do one called Day of the Dead because, oh, he's a bastard. Exactly, old Joe, and rest in peace. Yeah, rest. (laughs) Yeah, I love him. I loved loved meeting him and uh, Clark, (laughs) the the played Steel. He was great. (laughs) But, like, some of the the trivia that I love about uh, this movie is that brought two directors together that I admire uh, greatly is, well, George Romero wrote and directed this one, obviously, and 
but Gary Argento came on as a producer, and I didn't know that, like, back in the day that he invited Romero to come to Rome to write it, and that Romero supposedly, from what I understand, spent about a month in Rome just writing Dawn of the Dead, which to me is a greater story than the movie itself. It's just like, <laughs> you know, Romero just hanging out with Dario Argento, you know, circa 1977 or 76, you know, writing in Rome and just like, yes, 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 I'll, I'll have another glass of wine and just writing away. That's the greatest fucking story of all time. I would have loved to have been a fly on that cloud. I was about a year, two years old at the time, but... You know. <laughs> it worked out worked out well, that that pairing. I'm surprised that, you know, it, it didn't happen again until, what was it, Two, two Evil Eyes, I think, was when they, yeah, that they was did the it again? Time. Yeah, it was the next time they worked together again. And Two Evil Eyes was, you know, just... Eh, don't want to get into knocking a Romero movie, but it's not one of my favorites. By process of elimination, you know... Certain movies got to be your favorites and least favorites, but that it wasn't the great pairing that we had with this movie. No, it it wasn't. But you know, I mean, it even had the great uh, Claudio Simonetti and Goblin score. That mm-hmm. really is one of the things that makes or breaks a movie for me is having a really great score. Something like you know John Carpenter's Halloween or Friday the Thirteenth. But you know, this has just such a memorable score, and I'm partial to it. I've seen Goblin in concert before. It's it's just great. But like the beginning of the movie, it, you know, uh, we get into the gist of the story. We've already talked about the politics of, you know, running the, the ads on the TV. But, you know, the David M.G. comes on as Stephen to our pretty much our main character, uh, Fran or Francine. They call her Fran for most of the movie, played by Galen Ross. She's amazing in the movie. It's kind of a shame she didn't act more. She was really good. And I. Uh, you know, other than uh, seeing her in Madman and a little cameo in Creep Show, I've never seen anything else that she's done. Which, like I said, it's a shame. I would have loved to see more from her. But yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't know why we didn't. I don't really know much about her or her story. Um, I've done a few shows with her, and she's a, she's a sweet lady. But I I don't know a whole lot about why things just didn't go forward after that. Yeah, you would have thought it was. You would have thought this movie would have blown things up. But, you know, maybe it was just a matter of wanting to do something else, which I can also, you know, relate to. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. But she gets together. Uh, well, I shouldn't say she gets together. She gets cornered by Stephen, who is her, her boyfriend. And he's basically like, hey, nine o'clock, meet me on the roof. She, But she kind of balks at it at first. She's like, we can't run. You know, they're basically getting they're stealing a chopper. To make a run for it. Everybody is making a run for it. Everybody is abandoning their jobs, abandoning their posts. And from that moment, you know, she realizes this is it. We, we're going to have to run. We Then we go straight into what I call the SWAT team from hell. Uh, <laughs> with, you know, we get introduced to uh, Scott as Roger and then Ken Forey as Peter. But, you know, there's another character. I don't remember the actor who plays him, but there's a character called Wooly. And he goes friggin' nuts. They're getting ready in the SWAT team uh, to storm out this housing tenement building. And he is just spouting out racial epithets and saying a bunch of horrible things. And he just starts shotgunning people the minute they come out the door. I mean, now, granted, (laughs) they fire first, but he's rip-roaring and ready to go. He's looking forward to killing these people. (laughs) 
you know, and he just goes through that tenement building and just starts shotgunning people, just kicking in doors, shotgunning them until Peter, who is played by Ken Forey, who is a legend. I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, uh, this movie, obviously, uh, you know, d- Doubles Rejects, uh, Halloween. <clears throat> Kenan and Kel. <laughs> That's right. He was in Kenan and Kel, wasn't he? He was. <laughs> I forgot all about that until you mentioned it. It, that was actually the first place that I met him was on the set of Keenan and Kel. I happened to be on uh, working at uh, on the on the lot at Universal Studios where they shot uh, Keenan and Kel, and um, my uh, stepson was a, was a huge Keenan and Kel fan uh, of the show, and so uh, I took him to the the lot one day, and we went on on set so he could meet Keenan and Kel, and uh, there comes old Ken, and like ah, oh, now that's you want to see Keenan and Kel. I want to see Ken. That <laughs> yeah. was also forgot the first thing I really remember seeing him from, like in the late eighties, early nineties, was a little thing called Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. I don't know if you remember that one. <laughs> yeah, it was horrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. Well, yeah, it was absolutely horrible. But that was one of the first things I remember seeing him in. That and Death Spa, also very horrible. But he's good. <laughs> He's good in everything that, I mean, he's a, you know, he's performance guaranteed. He has a very imposing physical presence, but like he has that deep baritone voice and he's, he's very commanding at everything he says and does. Yeah. I love Ken. He's, I I love, I love to watch him and I just, I love him overall as a guy. He's great. Yeah. I had a pleasure meeting him uh, at ScreamFest many years ago. God, 15, 16 years ago. He was great. But I love the, you know, he comes in, he takes out Wooly. He's from another SWAT team, you know, and everybody is kind of like, you get the idea, is afraid of him, but they don't know if they should turn their gun on him when he shoots Wooly. They're like, is, is he going to go nuts and start killing people next? Right. The SWAT team members, like one guy completely just loses it and commits suicide while they're storming the place. So you're getting the idea. This is, you know, instead of like a Night of the Living Dead where people are, barricading themselves in and trying to remain calm these people are losing their minds they've been fighting this menace for well i mean if you look at the timeline of of it it's 10 years but you know it's we know it hasn't been 10 years right and i've 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 always been i've always been kind of confused by that scene um because it's um I, I get it. I, I get the it's a great scene. I love the, the whole the whole piece. Um, it's got some great effects. It's got some great moments and things in it. Um, and I, I understand the chaos and stuff like that, that they want to put up front as to what's going on and the world falling apart and people losing their minds and stuff like that. But it almost seems like that whole segment just does not belong in the movie at all. You know, for the for. 50-50, I agree with you. Like, part of me thinks it feels unnecessary other than to introduce uh, Peter and Rod, you know, and so we get to know who they are. Yeah. Uh, like, other than that, all I can figure out, like, that I can say to justify it is that they're showing what's happening across the, the United States, you know, or across the world, probably, and that they're probably clearing the big cities, clearing people to you know send quote unquote to safety i don't know you know it i would imagine there would be you know in the big cities there would be a clean sweep of apartment buildings and housing complexes and stuff like that but really i mean for the rest of the movie it doesn't really feel it doesn't 
I don't know, right. It just feels out of place. Yeah. Yeah. But I, 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 get I, I get it. I get the idea behind it and, and all that and, and, you know, to show the chaos, but it just, it's the, the, the whole tone of it is different than the rest of the film. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Especially when they get into the basement of the tenement building and they start clearing out, you know, where they were keeping the dead people right. or keeping the zombies and P- Peter, you know, clears it out. It just didn't feel, eh, it didn't feel in proper placement, but I think like the whole, uh, see the whole sequence is worth it for the one line that we get from the priest that comes along that is very prophetic. You know, as he just says, we must stop the killing or we'll lose the war. And yeah. I wrote that down as one of my favorite lines just because, like, he is so right. You know, he tells them, you know, right now we are stronger than them, but, you know, soon I might think they'll be stronger than you. And that's exactly what happens. I mean, that pretty much tells what we have to look forward to in Day of the Dead. Right. You know, because that's exactly where everything leads, where you're like, okay, now we're outnumbered. You know, was a Frankenstein says in um, Day of the Dead, something like a couple hundred thousand to one. Yeah, those are bad numbers. Really, really <laughs> bad fucking numbers. Something like a couple, 250,000 to one. Yeah, don't take those odds. Don't take those odds of who you're betting on for humans to be the winning team here. Right. <laughs> and this is actually, where, though, where we do get another cameo in this opening sequence by uh, John Amplis. Who yes, plays uh, uh, Martinez. Martin. Yeah, well, he plays Marti- <laughs> Martinez in this movie, and then I think, and then he plays you know Martin in the movie Martin, which is a fucking great movie. Exactly. So, I, I know he played a couple other extras, uh, zombies and whatnot, but I made a little note of that John Amplis cameo. But anyway, they they do end up stealing the chopper. They meet. <clears throat> they meet. You know, uh, with. Peter and Roger and, you know, Roger kind of, you know, uh, convinces Stephen and them to let let Peter come along since he kind of saved his ass and was like, hey, you know, he's my boy. He'll come with us. And then as they're just traveling, they have really no plan. They're really like going nowhere. They're just running, you know, just running scared. But then we have what I call the good old boys sequence where they're just hunting them down. There's everybody's down on the ground. It's another part of the movie that just kind of it's very prophetic to what we see at the end with the looters. It's like I kind of feel like the good old boys that were the National Guard and the rednecks with the guns just hunting and, you know, hanging and killing zombies randomly out in the woods was kind of like where the looter where the looters probably started out, (laughs) you know. They probably started probably started out just drinking beer, partying, and having fun, shooting zombies, and then it became like, let's just steal and destroy everything. <laughs> but then that's when we get to Monroeville Mall. That's where they they see it, and uh, you know, and to them it's like a new thing. Like, ooh, it's one of those new big indoor shopping malls. And now to kind of think of where we're at in 2020 with shopping being done pretty much solely online, you know, would a shopping mall in 2020 be the place to go to barricade yourself in and i mean i just i don't know i don't know that you would be able to find one that would probably have that many stores and that many things at your fingertips it certainly wouldn't have an arcade yeah the and and especially there's i mean there's so many shopping malls and stuff that are dying and stuff now um they're not nearly going to have as many supplies now as they did back then in that movie. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Nothing that would sustain a group of four for months and months on end. You know, 
you'd be like, well, we can stay here for a week. <laughs> and you know what? And, and what I found uh, and kind of, well, sort of on topic, but a little off. One of the things that I found fascinating about the whole making of the movie and being in that mall is that um, the, the, the mall w- was still functioning while they were filming. So they couldn't film in the day. They had to, you know, move everything in uh, when the mall closed, shoot through the night, make sure it was all out by morning for when they opened the next morning, um, which is, uh, as, as a filmmaker, I know what a pain in the ass that is to begin with, um, to, to, to tear down and reset and tear down and reset over and over and over. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that, that, that the, the mall just went, yeah, here's the keys, have fun. Um, and even even uh, uh, the bank, when they go in the bank and they're playing with the money and stuff like that, that's the, the real money in the bank. It's oh, like, really? <laughs> yeah. I yeah. did not know that. Yeah, they were they were telling me, I don't remember who was telling me if it was Ken or it might have been, I don't know, it might have been Romero himself, um, that when they were filming in there, that, that, yeah, they just let them, you know, have run of the bank. They trusted them, I guess. <laughs> Well, I remember uh, reading at one point and uh, something that Savini had said about the only thing that really had went wrong was that a group of zombies had, uh, you know, were continuously going to a nearby bar to get drunk and had stolen a golf cart and like crashed into one of the shops. Right. Yes. I <laughs> <that>. <laughs> like, oh, like, I hope their insurance covered that shit. <laughs> but yeah, I can't imagine, uh, you know, you know, setting up and breaking down like that at the end of every day, you know, and the amount of cleanup they had to do when they were just getting everything bloody and gory and destroying the place virtually. I can't imagine the, the, the manpower in the man hours that it took to do that, to set it up and break it down. And then for them to be shooting when they did, I, I read at one point and somewhere I read in a book that they had to shut down for a couple of weeks because Christmas had come along and they mm-hmm. couldn't, can have all the Christmas decorations, so that's when they shot like the SWAT team stuff and the stuff at the television station, which is you know just a matter of scheduling, you know, and and knowing your schedule and having your schedule tight. But I just find that you know amazing as well. Yeah, it's um, um it I, I can't imagine I, I mean having that few hours to you know move in, set up, shoot tear down clean everything over and over and over again it would that i that would break me <laughs> yeah. yeah i would i would fall apart i i would just literally fall apart in what another you know numbers thing that gets to me i i think i might it might have been in one of savini's uh effects books that i have where he talked about they only had eight people to do all the zombie makeup like at some point they were making up 200 and some zombies and they only had eight people doing that. I mean, hell, on uh, Postmortem America alone, we had maybe 50, 55 zombies in that one scene. You know, that was the most zombies we ever did. And I had three people just to do that. I can't imagine the rate of how many zombies and how many days they had people in zombie makeup only having eight people applying that shit. Right, right. But, yeah. but then, you you know, too, you, you see that a lot of them really were just guys with green paint on their face. So they didn't go into a whole lot of detail on them. <laughs> Right. Well, yeah, the, especially all the ones in the background. You, know, right. you you really, really look at it like the ones in the background were just green and blue. <laughs> but, you know, but still, that takes some time to put 200 people in, into that makeup. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it it, it does. I, I can't imagine if they were having to do, uh, 
you know, prosthetics and all that kind of stuff, they that would have been insane. Well, I mean, at the the rate that they did like prosthetics for Day of the Dead, I mean, I think like Savini had his skills honed to, to uh, you know a razor's edge at that point, and probably you know was a little bit more efficient. But still, yeah. and that was a lot more appliances. And that that is like Dawn of the Dead is my favorite of the trilogy of the original trilogy but the day of the dead makeup is my favorite if that makes sense yeah well and day had a very uh, he had organized a very um a, a, a very organized um assembly line approach to doing that um with day so that worked out really well and also he chose to use a lot of masks um in day for the background uh, zombies so that that helped out a lot too but but yeah it was much more uh much more detailed but he had some great guys working on that crew i mean nicotero you know he was training nicotero at the time um there, there was some some really skilled people and he had this assembly line process down to where it's just like move to this one move to this one move to this one everybody had a specialty of what they did instead of having to worry about a full look um you went ah. to this guy they did their thing. You go to the next guy, they do their thing. Um, and so it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it, it was much more efficient. It's, it sounds like it. That's the way to go. I wish I would have thought of something like that when we were doing post-mortem. <laughs> uh, cut down some of those hours on those days. But anyways, anyway. But Monroeville Mall uh, and this place itself as a location has a special place in my heart. I, I've, I've been going to conventions since 92, and in 1993, they held the Zombie Jamboree at Monroeville Mall. At that point, was the 25th anniversary of Night of the Living Dead, and it was the only second convention I ever went to, and I had met so many people there. Like I ended up waiting in line twice to meet Romero, never got to meet him because his line was so long that I spent half the day in line and never got to meet him. I met him many years later, thanks to you, actually, at Horror Hound. But, uh, you know, that's where I first met uh, Linnea Quigley, Brink Stevens, Kane Hodder. Uh, you know, first time I met Gunnar Hansen. So, you know, that was a big, big, big convention. And getting to walk around Monroeville Mall was just like, especially like we're walking around the food court and I'm like, this used to be the ice skating rink. Like, <laughs> no shit. Like, you know, is this the passing of time? I'd love to go and visit it again at some point and see what it looks like now. But yeah, that place. Yeah. Very memorable. Very memorable. But like when they get there, they see a gold mine. And I guess, you know, for 1978, you know, uh, it would have been a gold mine because that place would have been pretty much self-sufficient, you know, have its own electricity, its own plumbing, you know, I have its own supplies, everything, food, water, you name it. it you know, as long as you could defend it, it, I get the idea. A lot of people I know in modern day, you know, like who are not maybe into older horror, I have heard in many of forums, you know, argue the point like that it was a dumb idea for them to go there and stay there. Where else would you go in 1978 if you were running? I mean, right. I, I, yeah, I mean, when you've seen this place and it was all shuttered up and you know, only a few dead people walking around. I, mean, I, I can understand why they went there. But like, as soon as they land, Peter and Roger, they're staying overnight. They decide to raid the mall's shops. And the next note I have is as they're running around down within the guts of the the mall, 
they're going from shop to shop. They're like, okay, we're just going to, you know, kind of pull a rope of dope, kind of trick the zombies to think we're going in one spot where we're going to actually be coming out of another spot so that they can get their supplies back to where they've been hiding without, you know, raising uh, attention to where they're at. And the one thing I have to have a note here was goddamn Harry Krishna zombie foils of plans. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and Mike has lost his damn mind. So anyway, yeah, I have so, heard. I have heard. Yeah, not only is he a, a, a dick as a character, he's now a dick in real life. So. Yeah, life imitates art, or art imitates life. Yeah, I guess you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened to that guy. I, I know when I was first doing shows with him and stuff great guy and then something happened and he just lost his damn mind <laughs> it happens to the best of us sometimes people just go a little crazy sometimes they go, a little, <laughs> norman, they go a little norman bates that wasn't that was more um uh like foreshadowing from romero i guess you know because he was always kind of ahead of his time with a lot of things and he knew even then by putting mike as harry krishna john zombie as being the the dickhead of the movie um, that later <laughs> on it would come to pass. Yes, it would. And, you know, he's prophetic that way. He's just a, he's a fortune teller. <laughs> Bill George is a fortune teller. Uh, we'll see, where do we go from here? What's the next big hurdle that we come along? Stephen reveals that Fran is pregnant, which just, you, you can think about being pregnant in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. It could present some fucking problems. And, you know, <laughs> And the first, I think Stephen is kind of a dick. The character is because you know, he he you know. Well, Peter makes a, a comment about you know, uh, do you want to abort it? I know how how to do it. And Stephen just do- doesn't say anything. He shakes his head no, but you could tell he's like thinking about it. And yeah. it's just like you know, should you really be having this conversation with two people again that you hardly know? At least not with the lady present. Like <laughs> I felt it was. Very horrible. And she gives him hell the next morning. Like, you know, she gives all three guys hell. She stands up for herself as well. She should, you know, and basically tells him, listen, I don't want you all treat me any different now that you've found out what I got going on. And I want you to leave me with a gun whenever you leave. And I want to know what's going on. I want to be part of the plan. And, you know, I I appreciate that they did that with her character because Fran just totally puts her foot down. It's like, no, fuck you. You're not going to be treating me any different. You're not going to be talking about aborting my baby when I'm not around. You know, fuck you. <laughs> she does. She says everything pretty much but that. Yeah, and I think it's uh, interesting. I, I don't know um, really kind of the timeline as to what was going on in the U.S. at the time because I'm old now and have been hit in the head a lot and don't remember chron- chronology a, a whole lot. But I, <laughs> I, I think I think he had to... He, he had to... Um, make up for what he did with the female lead in night because she was such a worthless whiny little bitch um <laughs> that now we come into the 70s um which i'm sure at some point probably had the era thing going on and gloria steinem and all that kind of stuff. maybe that was around that time I, I don't know but where the he needed a stronger female so he made up for it with her <laughs> well you know i mean because Judith O'Day is a, a great actress and, and whatnot, but they do nothing with, you know, her character from the moment she gets traumatized from seeing Johnny die. She just kind of sits there and does nothing, yeah. you know, and it's just like, uh, yeah, I kind of see what you're talking about there. But and she even says she makes a point. She's like, I want to learn how to fly that helicopter, which mm-hmm. really ruffles Stephen's feathers because he's 
you know, kind of self-righteous about like how good of a pilot he is and how, you know, the plan they have is really great. But yeah, that's the thing. You know, it's not like just driving a car where everybody kind of knows how. If something happens to them, they're screwed. They don't know how to fly that thing. You know, it, she makes a very good point. Exactly. But they're all, they make a plan. They go on a run. They figure if they get these long trucks, they can park them in front of the main entrances so the d- zombies can't get in between the trucks and the doors and the front doors. And if they lock the place up, then they got the place sealed. The doors can, you know, like a barricade or the 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 trucks would be like a barricade for the doors. But this is where Steven starts, not Steven, <clears throat> but uh, Roger starts to fall apart. His kind of semi-macho bravado that he has of being super confident just breaks when he almost gets eaten by a zombie and he gets covered in his blood. You see him not physically break, but like mentally break. Yeah. And it causes a lapse in judgment. He forgets his bag. They go back to get it. He gets bitten. He gets bitten on the arm. He gets bitten on the leg. He's obviously, that's it, you know, and, and, you know, anything about zombie lore, once you got, get bit, it's only a matter of time before you go. Yeah. And, you, you know, they kind of set it, set it up in the beginning. You feel like his character, or at least his character or Peter is going to be like the hero. You're going to be the man, the main, uh, the main you know character of the movie. So he's already bit. He's pretty much gone. You know, I mean, like, you, at least his uh, fate is sealed, I guess you could say. Yeah. That's a whole that that whole sequence with the with the trucks and everything. I I I love that that it's one of my favorite parts of the film. And I was so glad when they they did the the remake of it that they still have kind of that you know go out to the truck moment. Um, yes. Even in the uh, the the remake, uh, because and it, I I think it needed to be there because it was it was such a strong moment in um, in the original. Um, I was I was super glad to see a, a, another version of it in the remake. And in and also while we're talking about it and on the subject of the remake for a moment, it's one of the few remakes that I like. You won't hear me say that often that I actually like a remake. I do not like it as much as the original, but it is a solid movie. And you know we got little cameos by uh, you know Scott is in it. Ken Forey is in it. Uh, even um, Tom Savini is in it for a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, so and, and an appearance by the the TV chopper appears in the very beginning in a like a little segment, which is kind of fun. But uh, the one thing that like, maybe you maybe you know, uh, or maybe you have some insight to this, but I had no idea what old Flyboy David M G was supposed to be doing while they were doing they were taking the trucks back and forth. Because they were all about not raising any kind of uh, attention and, and leaving the helicopter on the roof. And they even said somebody could see that helicopter on the roof and be snooping around. Why w- did they even have him flying back and forth? Because they weren't communicating by radio. They had no radio set up to communicate with the, with each other. You know, because he even at one point sees the zombies closing in on Roger's character. And he's just like, Roger, turn around. Look, man, he can't do anything. He's up in the helicopter. He can't exactly. even holler out the window. <laughs> what was his purpose right there? He 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 had no purpose to, to even be there. I don't understand the plan. Yeah, I I think, um, and, and I don't know for certain. I don't, I don't know, you know, why that decision was made. I think as a filmmaker, when I watch it, um, it I see it a, a couple of different ways. One way I see it is that in the script, it made sense to do this 
type of thing to convey like a uh, I don't know a, a a different perspective maybe um, even though it didn't make any sense um, to to have a different view and a different you know so to to, to involve more tension of them not being able to communicate maybe I don't know um, and then the second way I see it is um, it was could have been a sequence that was filmed differently. Um, they may have been, it may have been written differently. And when it came time to film it, it just didn't work out the way that it was on paper. And this is the best we can make out of that moment. Right. All right. Yeah. You, you raised some good points there. I was just, it, it, it always just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I was just like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Like it, it just looks, looks cool. Cause you know, you got the trucks, you know, driving down the road side by side and the helicopters flying above it. Maybe they just thought, hey, we have this helicopter for two more days. Let's use it. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Just to give a different perspective, you know, is that's so that's exactly one of the ways that I see it. And I don't you know, I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not, but but I it could have. <laughs> Might have, could have, should have, would have. Who knows? <laughs> and then. But at this point, you know they they've got their fortress sealed. They they've sealed it up. They've uh, they found a car that was being <laughs> a little Volkswagen that was being uh, showcased. So they used that to r- ride around. And I can't imagine that like the mall knew that they were going to be riding this Volkswagen around and tearing ass through and broom, doing burnouts in there because <laughs> somebody somebody found out about that afterwards and like, oh, this is what they did here. Like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But it's a great sequence, you know, because Roger's, you know, kind of useless, not totally useless, but his leg is tore up. He can still hotwire car and drive. So he's driving from one end of the mall to the other while they're locking up the doors. It's, an, it's a great sequence, but he gets his leg tore up a little bit more by another zombie. And, and, oh, and that's like actually one of the most gruesome moments to me in the movie when the, the zombie comes along, grabs a hold of his leg, which is just wrapped from knee to, to ankle in gauze <laughs> and just pops its thumb into it yes. doesn't rip or tear just like popping a grape it was just like oh every every time i watch it even to this day i've seen this movie probably a hundred times i bet you easy still makes me kind of cringe sends that shiver down my spine every time I'm, I'm the same way i see that that just that pop and i'm just like oh jesus <laughs> <laughs> like yep you feel the little sphincter just tighten up just a little bit when that happens <laughs> yeah, I think, and it's funny because it's it's um, it, it's I think it shows probably the least gore of any scene in the entire movie. But to me, it's the most disgusting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much, I'm with you there. That's that's the one that that gets me each every time. <laughs> you know, like all the different zombie effects, the other the other bites. You know, the the head explosions are all fine and dandy, but that one. That one and maybe the scene with the pulse checking machine at the end. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we'll get to that in a little bit. You know, we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. But, yeah, that one, that ranks a close second. But uh, they now have got, you know, the whole place is fortified. You know, they're, they're sealed inside. Now they're going on a hunt. So they they raid the place for guns. They raid the place for food. They set up the the little loft they have in the upstairs storage area. They actually even construct a wall to block off the staircase that leads up there because the only other way to get up there is either that or the elevator. And so they get in through like, not the elevator, but through the air shafts. 
So they decided in case anybody comes looking around, they're sealing off that area so nobody can get up there, which is smart move and very smart move. But now that they're all sealed up and locked up, they have the best line of the entire movie. This is my favorite line when they're talking about, you know, what's going on and what happened and why the zombies are there and everything. What he, uh, Ken Forey just says it point blank as Peter. He's like, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. And it's such a simple line, but so good. And, and so good that they had to reuse it for the remake. Right. <laughs> well, and, and then we get what to me, it was like the saddest sequence of the movie, you know, Rogers is slowly dying, and then they're you know they're trying to keep him drugged up. They're getting him all hopped up on morphine, and he's drinking Jack Daniels to numb the pain. But it's obvious. I mean, he's getting paler. He's getting sicker looking. He's going to go. And, you know, he's pretty much, like, just begging them for any kind of reassurance. He's like, hey, we, like, whooped him, didn't we? Like, didn't we whoop him and take everything? Like, we did good, right? Like, like yeah, trooper, you're, you're, you're going to be fine. Everything's just fine. We, we, we kicked ass and take names and... Like, and they're all looking at each other like, all right, who's going to be the one to break it to him? But, you know, and then we get the saddest moment of the movie where, you know, Peter puts down Roger, where, which is followed by an even sadder sequence. Like, Peter cooks a nice dinner for uh, Stephen and Fran, setting up a nice kind of date night in the little, like, uh, bar restaurant that's inside the place. And, you know, while they're having a nice dinner, Peter's standing at the, the grave where they buried him at one of the little like islands inside the Monroeville mall. And he's just drinking a bottle of champagne while Stephen is proposing to Fran who says no. Right. It's a total downer of a sequence, but I mean, it's, <laughs> it's showing both of them are just like not having very good nights. I, I think, I think is the best way to put it. <laughs> that has, uh, that has shifted into what the new normal has become. So. <laughs> right. That's every day in 2020, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, I don't blame Fran for saying no, you know, in it because this is like, okay, yeah, you can accept the ring, but like, who are you going to find to marry you that's even an officiant? And even if you did, like, it wouldn't really be kind of real. I mean, it, maybe the intent would be there, but, but still, you can't help but feel for Steven. He's just trying to hold on to something that's some semblance of normal much like us in 2020 trying to hold on to some semblance of normal and not the new normal because their new normal sucks a lot harder than our new normal (laughs) yeah we just have the plague they have zombies yeah they have have a zombie plague which to me is much worse (laughs) give it time if this vaccine doesn't work we'll have zombies soon Oh, yeah, but hell, the, the vaccine might cause the zombies for all we know, you know, <laughs> might be the new Umbrella Corporation for all we know. I mean, who right. anymore. But then we have this, <laughs> the, the shifting point of the movie where this causes the problems. Fran takes some uh, helicopter lessons from Steven. She's learned how to take off and how to land. 
And that's when trouble comes to paradise in the form of Savini's group of biker looter assholes. <laughs> <laughs> Savini and them, see, you know, see the helicopter landing on the on the rooftop of the Monroeville Mall, and they're just like, "Hey, we want some of what they got." And like, they they notice that the doors are blocked off, and they're making plans to go and raid the shit out of this place. They even try to like play off as like. I I, re- I do like the fact that the main guy, one of the two main guys alongside with Savini is like trying to talk over the ham radio and just like, hey, we, you know, we, we see you're all there. You know, there's only like three of us over here. And there's like dozens and dozens of these bikers, like <laughs> like a mile long of headlights as they're coming in. Like, yeah, there's only three of us here. And it makes me laugh every time. Like, oh, you guys are so full of shit. You're not even lying well. <laughs> And it's funny because, like, Savini, yeah, he's he's this bad guy that kind of blows everything up for them and stuff like that. But when I'm watching the movie and I'm watching Savini, it looks like he is having so much fun. I like him. <laughs> oh, I like his character. You're like, you're not meant to. But I think they refer to him as Blades is kind of like the nickname they gave his character. He's just having a gleeful old time. He's got machetes and bayonets and and pirate swords and and he's just having a grand old time he, i mean like and most of these guys are just a to be quite honest a, a bunch of bikers and good old boys just looking for a good time mm-hmm. and just means destroying everything in their paths you know because once they open up the doors they let in thousands of zombies which i made a note this is the one time in the original trilogy i i, I think that any character actually says the word zombies yeah when, when Ken Forey's character Peter says there's going to be a thousand zombies in here, I really think, I, unless I'm mistaken, it's the only time they actually ever utter the word zombies. Yeah, I think you're probably right because I, I I know they definitely didn't in Night. Um, so you, you you're probably right. That's probably the first time that they've said it. And, and I mean, they probably said it a couple of times in the the second trilogy with Diary of the Dead, uh, Land of the Dead, and Survival of the Dead. That they might have. I've only seen those a couple of times. I haven't seen them nearly as much as these. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But at least in this original trilogy, I, I'm pretty sure. But I thought that was yeah. kind of significant. But like these guys just come in and start laying waste. They they bust into all the shops. They're destroying stuff. Trying one guy is trying to steal the TV, a smaller TV, and they're like, "What the fuck? You got to watch on that." So like he just <laughs> decides to toss the TV down and smash it with a sledgehammer. It's just little things like that that it's just. There is a sort of weird, irreverent humor with this movie. Even as violent and as gory and as dark as it may be, there is a kind of, like I said, an irreverent humor with it. There's like, you know, there's one point where they break into the bakery, and I can't imagine that these pies were very fresh because they had already been in there for a couple of months, but they just like start smashing zombies with pies. And it's comical, but it leads you to just turn your head and go, what the fuck? It's the crazy. Whole, the whole movie is hilarious just because it's so over the top. And to me, it's just like it's it's a real life comic book um, with with the gore and the and the funny at the same time. And and Romero does that a lot. I mean, look, creep, look at Creep Show and stuff like that. Uh, it's you know, it's it's very comic booky um, and hilarious. And I think it, it's funny if it, uh, with with all that looting and rioting and stuff like that i you know if if george lucas had had made it he would probably go back and when he changes it for the 50th time would put uh, like a black lives matter poster in the background or something which would be hilarious as well but 
you know, take the guns out of their hands and replace them with walkie-talkies. Right, right, right. Yeah, Spielberg. So. <laughs> yeah, Spiel, Spielberg shot. But this is just where everything starts going crazy. Uh, Steven even kind of breaks. You know, he has a moment where he just gets crazy eyes and he keeps saying, we took it, it's ours. We took it, it's ours. And it's like, yeah, but you're just, you're you're like them, but you just didn't come in all guns blazing killing people. Mm-hmm. You were just killing zombies. There really, there's no difference. Uh, I think this is something that has been tried to be imitated many times in 40 to 40 to 50 years after this movie has come, come out. And even with night of the living dead is the fact that, you know, the, the undead hordes is not so much what you got to worry about that you worry about them secondhand. Yeah. You worry firsthand about other people that's showing that other people are really the problem that are really the villains are really the bad guys. And I just feel like, it's been often imitated, but never, du- you know, never duplicated ever. Yeah, uh, I, I think way. Romero, Romero is probably is the best at showing that the humans are the monsters and the monsters are not the threat um, of any filmmaker I've ever seen take on that concept. Yes, fully agree. The, the, like I said, this original trilogy really focuses on that and hones that down to, uh, you know, fine-tuned very well. And, yeah, nobody did it like Romero. But in everything from here on out is just craziness and looting. We get Stephen having his moment of, of breaking. He gets shot in an elevator shaft. The bikers leave him for dead, and then the zombies come in. They bite him, so they turn him. He turns awfully quick. Now, I don't, you know, the, you know. usually, you know, Romero has a thing. You know, he really has people take a while to turn. Unless they die, they don't come back automatically. All I can figure is that he got bit up so much, and he got, like, multiple bites and like six, seven bites and all over the place, his neck, his side, his arm, his leg, you know, that maybe the infection ran more rapid, but like he turned green, <laughs> like within a matter of 30 seconds when that elevator ro- rose up to the next floor, but, you know, it's, again, it's, a, it's a cool moment. It's, it's almost like, you know, I, I get it. It's sort of like, Oh, I just looked at the script and we only have 12 pages to wrap this up. So let's, let's do it um but uh of course but it's it's i think it's it's hilarious and it's another one of those hilarious and shocking at the same time moments when he is just suddenly it's like he's changed oh hell (laughs) (laughs) this is kind of like well that's what we got (laughs) yep (laughs) and really the rest of the movie is, is is uh the biker's Finishing raiding the place, they're taking off. Steven is leading his way back up because I think they're playing on to something that they would explore more in Day of the Dead, you know, like with Bub and zombies retaining some knowledge of their former selves. He knows, Steven knows that there's live people upstairs and he knows how to get up there. So he kind of leads the zombies on the way up the little secret way to get up to the the loft where everybody's at. And from there on out, it's, it's between that and... You know, Savini versus Peter, they kind of have a mano a mano thing where, you know, Savini keeps trying to kill the Peter, Peter's, you know, uh, the, the Peter character. And they're going back and forth until uh, Savini gets his ass shot and sent flying over the edge. And that's the end of him for the movie. But like like you said, it, it was almost sad to see him go. He, he seemed like he was having such a good time with everything. 
Yeah, yeah, I I love watching him in that because he's just he's having a blast. You can just tell that he is just personally having a blast doing what he's doing. Right, right. And I love a character that loves being a bad guy. You know, that is just having fun with it. You know, not because of any reason, just because of no reason, just because. Right. <laughs> Now, the ending that we got versus the ending that I know that they had in planned. I mean, you know, with the ending, Stephen is turned. You know, he gets put down by Peter. Peter tells Fran just to get into the helicopter and go. He doesn't want to leave with her. He just wants to die. So he's going to stay behind. Then, of course, he has a moment where he's like, dun, 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 dun. he decides last minute to put the final bullet into a zombie's head and fight his way up to the roof. Through all the zombies, because he's Peter. He's a freaking monster. He's a you know, <laughs> he, he's a hulk of a man, and he can just plow through zombies like a linebacker. But he gets up to the helicopter before she's going to take off, and they kind of have their happy ending, or or semi happy ending. And Fran and Peter are now virtually alone. And Peter's lost his best friend. She's lost her boyfriend, and they don't even know where they're going. And we never know where they're going because. They never quite get there, and they don't even have a lot of gas. They're just like, how much fuel we got? Not a lot. Well, just keep on going, you know, and we'll just keep running. Now, I know the original ending that they only filmed a little bit of was supposed to be Peter committing suicide, using the last bullet on himself, and Galen Ross's character, Fran, stepping out and stepping up into the helicopter blades to to decapitate herself. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I'm all for a dark ending. I mean, you know, Empire Strikes Back is my one of my favorite movies of all time, so I'm all about dark endings, you know, but I, I'm kind of glad they didn't go that route. Like, not like they have much hope in the direction that the direction that they're going, but there's at least a little hope, you know, that they might survive at least to the next day. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it would have... Uh... I, I don't think it would have been the, the right way to go because I, I, I get it with, with Night of the Living Dead. With that shock ending, it fit the tone of the piece and everything like that. With Dawn, though, it's all it, it's this back and forth thing of, oh, there's hope, no, there's not. Oh, there's hope, no, there's not. Oh, there's hope, no, there's not. So I think ending it on that note of, oh, there's hope, um, but maybe not because there's no gas. Um, right. Was the way to do it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. At, at least like the other way would have been way too final. And it just would have it would have been like the ending for Night of the Living Dead. So I think Romero's maybe had some foresight that was like, you know, maybe we'll let these guys live. Maybe at least let a couple of them live to see another day. It would have been neat <laughs> the way the Day of the Dead ends. Like if we would have just panned down the, the beach and just seen like at the other end of the beach was another helicopter and like, oh, that's where Fran and Peter ended up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or a crashed helicopter. <laughs> or a crashed helicopter and been like, oh, that's, yeah, that's where they ended up. <laughs> you exactly. <know>? Exactly. <laughs> well, I but think, I, you I know, think that was wise. Yeah, yeah, I think that was wise. Well, you know, I know what this movie means to me. I mean, it heavily influenced me to make my first feature film, and you know, which you starred in, Postmortem America 2021. That and Night of the Living Dead were both big influences. All the, the Romero Dead films were. But, you know, I think what this means to zombie films or just, you know, horror films in general is just, it's unmeasurable. You know, Romero, you know, managed to create so many other films and so many other things like, you know, uh, 
creep show season of the witch the crazies and uh, dark half and whatnot i mean so many other films but this original trilogy is just in so many words fucking amazing and it's epic on a grand scale like the music is top notch the the acting is top notch the effects are still great even even though the the blue green kind of zombie makeup from time to time kind of makes me just cringe a little bit probably not as much as it makes Savini cringe because I know he he, he is not a, not a fan of like you know he, I think he should be proud of the work because everybody's got to start somewhere you know and the, to not be proud of it you know I think would be a mistake but I can understand like some of the tone the skin tones being used just could have been a little different <laughs> yeah and, and I'm, I'm okay with it though because like I said when I oh, look yeah. at the movie I look at it as a comic book and, you know, you're looking at primary comic book colors, you know, yellow, red, blue, you know, and so that's, you know, that greenish blue is, it's a primary comic book color. So I, I'm fine with that. Yeah, I'm fine with it, but it, just at times it kind of makes me go, ooh. But yeah, <laughs> it is very comic bookish. I mean, like, I think his, uh, Romero's most comic book-like film has to be Creepshow because even the transitions are all like the turning of the page of a comic book. Right. I think I think that kind of uh, style of filmmaking would have paired well with this uh, because it does it plays like a graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now, like, it would have. Now I know where you stand with this film pretty much. I can probably guess what your rating is going to be, but want to go ahead and give your final thoughts and re- uh, final review and rate this sucker on a scale from one to ten. Um. Yeah. I um. I think in its um. It's important uh, to cinema at the time and all that, as well as carrying on uh, what he started in the 60s. Um, I think it's a, a super important genre film um, that helped really kind of shape everything. Um, it's still a lot of people try to imitate it, try to do the same thing. It's just not quite the same. Um, it's, it, you know, with, with the remake that we mentioned, um, they, it's one of the few remakes that I like also. Um, I think they, they did it justice, probably the closest thing that Romero's done to that type of, um, story. Um, so I think it's very important. I think it's, it's very good. I think it's, um, rewatchable over and over and over. Um, is it aged a little bit? Yeah. Um, but it's, it's not like some of the movies back then where it's kind of like you watch it now and, and sort of cringe most of the way through. Um, so I, I, I think it's an important film. It's one of my favorite uh, zombie films and Romero overall really is, is one of my all time favorite writers, directors. Um, so, uh, so I, it's going to be way up there on the high scale. Like if, if we're going up scale of 10, I'm, I'm giving it a 10. I have to agree, and I'll even send you a screenshot of my notes that I have with a big 10 out of 10 at the top of it. To give this movie anything besides a 10 out of 10 is fucking ludicrous. It's just amazing. It's amazing storytelling from an amazing storyteller. I I think Romero, you know, a lot of filmmakers make a good film. Romero makes a great film and tells an amazing story each time, every time, you know, uh, I know a lot of people consider, you know, Night of Living Dead to be the all-time classic, but it is the one that, you know, kind of started that genre and, you know, and opened it up, you know, opened zombies up to something completely new. 
you know, the being flesh eaters back in the grave, you know, ah, everything about it is amazing. You know, all, yeah, the, 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 the soundtrack is completely amazing. The goblin music that by Claudio Simonetti, you know, all the European influence with it. I'm also a big fan of, I'm a big fan of those films by Dario Argento and Lucio Fulci. And it just, it seemed like the perfect marriage at the time, you know, of taking it one step further, you know, than Night of the Living Dead, you know, which was virtually goreless. And this movie is a gorehound's wet dream. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, it's, I mean, can you think of a zombie movie that has more gore in it? Probably not. And if it does, it's not as memorable. Right. <laughs> the cultural significance of this movie, like you said, yeah, might it be a little bit dated, but, you know, it's also. 42 years old, everything's going to be a little bit dated. Uh, you know, uh, Frankenstein, you know, from the 30s is, out, is you know, outdated and whatnot. Doesn't make it any less amazing. Mm -hmm. And this movie is every, every bit as classic as Frankenstein. So, yeah, uh, one of my favorite movies by my one of my favorite directors. And, yeah, full-on 10 out of 10. And, you know, I, I can't be mad at the remake. We can talk about the remake a little bit. We Maybe we'll talk about it on a future show. But, you know, when when I first heard the idea of a remake of Dawn of the Dead, I will have to say I was not for it because we have seen many reiterations and sequels and spinoffs of Night of the Living Dead, which the only one worth a damn worth mentioning is the one that Savini directed in 90, you know, his version of Night of the Living Dead, which I still think is, is a great movie. Mm -hmm. It's a great zombie movie. And, you know, it was the first movie I remember seeing Tony Todd in and he's amazing in it. But when I first heard of the Dawn of the Dead remake, I had, I'm like, okay, this is kind of done by a trauma guy and, you know, not knocking trauma at all. But I'm just like, what kind of hands is this in? And it was a solid remake. And it's, you won't, like I said, hear me say that often because I'm, I'm a sequel guy, but I am not a remake fella. So, but, but still, you know, at least uh, they got the Dawn of the Dead remake right where they've already tried remaking uh, Day of the Dead twice and have gotten it wrong both times <laughs> yeah horribly horribly wrong <laughs> oh god day of the dead 2 contagium have you ever had the displeasure of seeing that i i have and it was so memorable i cannot tell you a single scene in it <laughs> exactly i remember nothing from that movie other than the fact that i actually finished watching it because i'm a masochist and i like hurting myself <laughs> it was kind of like it was like creep show three you know i had the discussion with uh scott yesterday you know and he likes creep show three and i'm like you know for you buddy i will give it a second viewing you know because i believe every movie deserves a second viewing you know like maybe you, you miss something or maybe you appreciate it i doubt that i will but there's yeah, well, you know, Scott's favorite Jaws movie is Jaws 3D and Jaws of Revenge also, so it doesn't say anything. <laughs> oh, God, Jaws 3D. Oh, Lord have mercy. Uh, Scott, we're looking at you, man. We're getting some side <laughs> eye. <laughs> Love you, brother. I'm, I'm the guy, I, I was the guy that back in the day also thought Escape from L.A. was a great sequel until I saw it again about a year later and like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's not good. It's I would say it, it it's entertaining, kind of, but it's not yeah. good. <laughs> no, not at all. Oh, boy. Well, I think we've exhausted about every resource we can have from uh, picking on Scott to talking about George. Uh, <laughs> <laughs>
I think this was, this was a good uh, a good pick for the two of us to do. Yeah, as ob- obviously we both came in very high on it. Uh, you know, this like when we reviewed uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If I could break the rules for this one and give it a, an eleven out of ten, I would. It's just that good. So, yeah, it's uh, it it definitely scores up there. And and you know, like I mentioned earlier, I I'm old and have been hit in the head a lot. So for it to stand out in my mind as strongly as it does and the images and the scenes and stuff um, says a whole lot for the power of the film. Well, this, like I said, this is the least amount of notes that I have written for any show that I've done. I usually have two, three pages of notes. I I had less than a page just because all I had to do, I mean, I, I can remember this movie pretty much frame by frame. That's why, like, when I saw the extended cut, I was noticing every little bit of difference with that when I finally saw it. I'm like, I've seen this, you know, theatrical cut a hundred times. I have not seen this. So I might just have to, just because it's Romero Appreciation Month, I may wa- I have the Ultimate Edition, which has four different versions of the movie on it. <laughs> Got the theatrical version, the I think the import, the European cut, and the extended cut. So it's got everything. I'm probably going to watch like the three hour version. I don't know, probably this weekend, whenever I'm not recording a show, if I don't have anything to do, I'm going to watch it again. I can pick this movie up and watch it anytime. It's one of Romero's best. And one of the main reasons why I wanted to do an appreciation month for him, because he deserves a hell. He does. It deserves to be Romero appreciation year. With the kind exactly. of year. <laughs> Well, I have to I have to ask since I have you on here, and before we go for the evening, you know, we finished our review. But being a Romero fan and actually having worked with Romero, do you have a favorite Romero movie of all time? Uh, yeah, for for me, it's um, the original Night of the Living Dead. It's the movie that um, I was not interested in horror as a genre at all. Um, and when I saw that movie, I was riveted to the screen every second of it. And, um, it really, really made a huge impact on me and opened my eyes to a whole new genre, a whole new way of filmmaking, of writing, of telling a story. Um, so that one, uh, that one has a huge, huge place in my heart. As well it should. At least it's not in your brain. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> they be aiming for the head. <laughs> oh, well, I think we can uh, tidy this up for the evening. I want to thank you for joining us, uh, Jim, or joining me, I should say. It's been fun. We don't get to talk very, very often, but when we do, I love just getting to talk for a couple hours about these movies we love so much. Hey, well, thanks for having me. It's always great. Yeah, it's always fun times, and we'll be working together soon, and you might as well use this uh, as an opportunity to plug your next movie if you want to uh, give yourself a shameless uh, promotion there. Uh, Sure. Uh, A quick little plug. We're doing, uh, well, of course, we've got uh, Hell's Bells that's going to be out soon, which is a silly horror comedy that we got to work on together. And uh, coming up soon, um, filming next year, is going to be Cruel Summer which is a throwback. I mean, it's straight like 80s slasher, just right straight down the line, 80s slasher, um, which is going to be a lot of fun that Scott Tepperman and I have been kind of putting together and uh, you're going to be working on with this as well. 
Yeah, I, I imagine something bad's going to happen to me on camera. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But knowing yeah. the kind of movies that we end up making, something bad's going to happen to me. Exactly, not giving away anything, but maybe. No, yeah, might, might. It just depends on how horrible it might be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I always have fun working with you, and I had a lot of fun on Hell's Bells. Uh, looking forward to a cruel summer. Hopefully, uh, 2021 is a little less cruel of, of an actual summer. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, we'll hope. We'll hope that everything sort of, you know, we don't go into another lockdown and stuff like that, and that we do actually get to, to start it when we want to. Yep, hopefully, hopefully, you know, hopefully uh, everything starts going going on the up and up but look forward to working with you on that and once again i want to thank you folks for listening in to our silly little show here where we're just waxing uh poetic about george romero movies not for any reason just because we can thanks thanks for listening folks